This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Lyndon. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? Good. Good to see you. You've been away. I have been away, yes. I've just spent a few weeks in Europe uh, exploring the Northern Hemisphere, went up to Iceland and saw oh. the longest day of the year up there, which was pretty magical. Now now back to winter. Back to winter. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Although I'm happy to say that uh, statistically the coldest day of the year in Melbourne has passed. Statistically, the coldest day of the year is the first half of July, but statistically, the coldest night of the year is in the second half of July. So we've got a little bit of winter to go. Ah, right. Yeah, it's bloody cold at the moment. And Dr. Catherine, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. You've been adventuring. We're going to talk about it later, but you've been adventuring up in Sydney. I have. I've had a busy couple of weeks, but I'm back in Melbourne and, yeah, pleased to be home. Slightly warmer up there. It, it was. It was nice. It was in the twenties. It was. Yeah, it was pretty um, difficult to come back here on Friday night. It felt yeah. pretty cold. Yeah. Thanks for bringing the sun. <laughs> Indeed. Now uh, we've got a bit of news coming up for you, folks, and then we have a couple of guests today. Uh, one who's been on before just recently, but we're we're going to be talking to her about something very different, fairly emotional topic, uh, and another on the phone from Adelaide, which will be very cool. But we're going to start off with some news. Doctor Linden, do you want to kick yeah. it off? Yep. Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, I uh, was reading a paper earlier this week and I learned quite a few new things about our country this week. So you know that we have this the rabbit-proof fence, right? We've got the rabbit-proof mm. fence in Western Australia. But something I didn't realise is that we also have a dingo, dingo fence. Did yeah. you know? I didn't know we had mm. a dingo fence. We've got lots of fences. We do have lots of fences. So the dingo fence is one of the longest man-made structures in the world, apparently. It's over 5,000 kilometres long yeah. and it goes from the southeast corner of Queensland all the way down to the southwest corner of South Australia, and it's uh, theoretically to keep the dingoes away from the sheep in southeastern mm. Australia. So it was built in the 1800s, uh, in about the 1880s, sorry. And uh, that means we've got a lot of, we've had a lot of time, and there have been a lot of studies done looking at how this fence is changing the ecology, how it's changing the populations of different species on either side of the fence, right? But a new study that's come out this week has managed to sort of connect the fence with changes in sand dune structure mm. on either side of the fence, right? So this is a study from UNSW and the University of Wollongong. And and they've used a combination of historical aerial photographs and drone uh, flights and also field trips to show that the sand dunes on different sides of the fence, this is up in the Streslecky National Park up in um, northern New South Wales, southern Queensland. This is where they've done the study. Sand dunes are actually different on either side of the fence, mm. which is a little bit... A bit strange. So the theory, the theory goes like this. If you have fewer dingoes, right, which you've got on the eastern side of the fence, then you've got more second level predators like foxes and cats and those kinds of things. And if you've got more of those, then you will have fewer little herbivores, little critters like hopping mice that eat the seeds and the seedlings. So if you've got fewer of those, then you'll get more shrubs. Mm. And, and more, more, uh, more kind of foliage, more foliage, more kind yep. of mid-level plants. And if you've got more mid-level plants, then that changes the way that the wind blows over the landscape, which changes the way that the sand dunes behave. Mm. So they found that uh, where they had fewer dingoes, they had more shrubs, and the sand dunes were higher and shaped a little bit differently, and also maybe a little bit more stable. 
which is yeah, it's really interesting. I, I actually wasn't mm. expecting that. And they're not they're not saying that fewer dingoes means different sand dunes, but what they're saying is fewer dingoes means more shrubs. More shrubs means different sand dunes. Mm. And so you can actually see now that this change in the ecosystem and the, this human made barrier that we've put in is actually changing the geomorphology of the landscape. Mm. Which yeah, I just thought that was that was really interesting that's the far-reaching tendrils of our impact you know and i think there was similar studies in the u.s in the northern hemisphere um where they looked at the impact of wolves being oh, reintroduced yeah. mm-hmm. and the impact was seen in the streams in the water quality really? because the the amount of grazing by you know animals that traditionally would be the prey of wolves changed and the amount of grazing affects the stream quality mm-hmm. etc runoff and, and you know so you measure the water there and all of a sudden you can see the impact of putting a wolf back in, which is quite surprising. It's surprising. Yeah, it just shows the importance of apex predators. Exactly. Stop yep. eating shark, people. Yes. If it's called flake, don't, don't eat. eat it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's <laughs> yeah, apex predators very important. Mm. Dr. Catherine, what do you got? Dr. Shane, I've been reading this week about a question I've always wondered myself personally, and it's about scientists' use of social media. So, obviously, there are many different kinds of social media. The most common one still is Facebook, and the the stats suggest, certainly from the US, where most of the data comes out from, that around 70 to 80% of Americans use Facebook every day. So mm. it's still, despite what we hear about Facebook sort of being a little bit less popular, it's still very, very commonly used. Twitter, on the other hand, is used uh, less commonly. I think it's le- around less than 10% of people use Twitter on a daily basis. However, it's very common for scientists and researchers to use Twitter. So, and I, and, and in fact, I use Twitter for this very reason. So this study came out looking at when scientists put things on Twitter, uh, is it actually reaching other scientists or is it targeting the general public, policymakers, decision makers and the media? And, and where are... Where are the followers coming from? So this was a study that, and really the first time that they've looked exactly at at scientists on Twitter in terms of followers. So they followed 110 different academic scientists. So they were people who were uh, affiliated with a university or an institution from 85 different institutions and 11 different countries. So trying to get a very big Mm. representation around the world. And these were people specifically from a biology area. And then what they did is they removed anyone who was using Twitter for more personal reasons so that they were really looking at people who were doing science media communication and then followed and looked exactly into who their followers were. So across the board, there were 110 people studied. They had 66,000 followers between the group. And what they found was some really interesting relationships People who had less followers tended... Their followers were other scientists. Right. So basically, if you had... An, and the number, the critical number there was 450. Mm-hmm. If you had less than 450 followers, it's, it's usually your friends and your other scientists from mm-hmm. your faculty basically following you. But beyond 450, that's when it really... There was a very steep rise in other scientists... In terms of non-scientific followers, so things like people like decision makers, policy makers, the general public, you had to actually reach a much higher number of followers before mm-hmm. that really hit in into the thousands. So what this is telling us is, is really that people who can generate a very big list of followers beyond a couple of thousand people, their reach is obviously much greater, but it's actually reaching people in non-scientific audience as well, which mm. is one of the targets. Everybody uses Twitter for different reasons, but certainly it's one one way to actually get the findings out to non-scientific communities. Mm. Mm. Dr. Catherine, did they talk to the actual scientists themselves in the study to ask them what their goals were being a part of Twitter? Because some people, some scientists use it 
and the language that they use to communicate is not really appropriate for decision makers or the general public. Yeah, they didn't actually speak to the scientists themselves. The way they did this was going through their profiles and their actual sort of um, Twitter, fol- the, the public things you could find with their followers. But that's exactly right. A lot of the language that people use, it, it won't be accessible for for a variety of people who might not be working specifically in their field. Mm. So, And that's where actually um, your, your target audience, tailoring the language to mm. the audience is very important. Yeah, I know. I have a friend of mine in California who she uses it specifically when she goes to conferences to take notes. So, like, if you follow her Twitter feed, it's literally her note-taking. Wow. And so, now, I, I, you know, I don't go to the sorts of conferences she goes to, but I, I've looked at some of those, and it's sort of like reading a script of what she's experiencing at mm-hmm. the conference, and she says she then downloads it and uses it as her personal notes, and, like, some of her colleagues really like it wow. because they don't get to go to the conference, yeah. but they see her reflections on the conference, and quite detailed, you know. So that's a different way, yeah. again, to mm. to use it. And I certainly follow other people when I can't go to conferences and see what, what they're putting up mm. because it's the quickest way to find out the latest findings that, mm. are, that are being talked about but not yet published. So it is nice when you can't actually get to a conference. I've done that sometimes as well. But you're and not just putting up pictures of your meals? No, <laughs> no, no pictures of the meals. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a valuable study too for early career researchers, I think, to try to figure out how they want to tailor their communication and who they're wanting to talk to, if they want to talk to other people within their field to try to find their next job or if they're really trying to bridge that next level and start communicating to to external people. Well, we've had a couple of occasions where there's been a last-minute cancellation of a guest on the show, like on a Friday hour or something, and I've... I won't say mistakenly, but disturbingly put up a, a Twitter comment saying, hey, we've got a spot. Would anyone like to come on? And then I'm dealing with the requests for about the next six hours. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I've got the person I need in about three minutes. And then I'm getting all these direct messages. Like, it just They're goes popular on. popular chairs, Dr. Shane. Well, popular you know, chairs. chairs. You but, you know, it's incredible. I mean, it's, it, it, is, it does show how some scientists in particular are using it and mm. seeing, looking for those opportunities in science communication and so forth that, mm. that come up. So, and, yeah. I've, I've managed to, you know, lock in ten guests over three months as a result of one request on Twitter. That, you know, do not tweet to me, folks, if you <laughs> not today, <laughs> another time. Um, now, I wanted to talk briefly about some work that's been done by quite a few groups uh, working together. Actually, it's um, University of Berlin, Tufts University, Imperial College London, and Washington State that have been looking about the possibility of finding bacteria or any other sort of life on on a number of you know non Earth based uh, objects in the solar system. In particular, the ones we're sort of most interested in, which would be Mars, of course, um, Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn, which is really interesting because it has a subsurface ocean, uh, Europa, which are, you know, everyone's favourite. And um, and more recently, Pluto. And the question is, <clears throat> excuse me, what what could what could survive, and what are the requirements of, of you know bacteria surviving in these locations? And so, what these particular teams did is they grabbed the bacteria that they found uh, living quite happily in the Arctic permafrost, which, if you think about, it, is a pretty nasty, crappy environment for anything to mm-hmm. live in. It's really cold. There's not a lot of nutrients. There's generally not a lot of sunlight. There's there's every restriction you could possibly think of. And they took that, and then they started uh, seeing how it would go with certain chemical. Solutions. So, and the one that they looked at in particular was um, perchlorate, um, but also like basically salt solutions, so salty, briny sort of waters and so forth. Things you'd find on Mars and some of these environments where you think, you know, how could something live in these environments? I mean, we actually use some of these chemicals to kill bacteria. <laughs> That's the funny thing. So, and and it's interesting because what they found was, and this was something I didn't I didn't really understand, but 
The the processes involved in things like perchlorate and other chemicals killing bacteria are like many chemical processes. That is, when you cool things down, things slow, and they don't work as well. So the killing process doesn't work as well at lower temperatures. So, for example, if you take um, this particular bacteria they were using and you put in a sodium chloride solution, so a, a salt solution, and you watch it at room temperature, after about two weeks, all dead, like the whole lot's dead. But if you lower it to minus 15 degrees Celsius, it just keeps on living. No problem whatsoever. I mean, it's, really? you know, that's not to say it necessarily you know, thrives, but it survives, which is different. So now you have to be careful there. There's two different things. There's thriving mm-hmm. and you know, multiplying, which is sort of a different game, but there's surviving. And what happens is for each of these chemicals, there is a different temperature sort of sweet spot where you'd find that some of these bacteria will actually manage to survive. And for some of them, it's as low as, you know, minus 30. So, um, you know, some of the solutions they tried had to be really cold. Now, if you think of the environments we're talking about, um, you've got to remember that when you add all these chemicals, you're essentially making antifreeze. And so these these solutions don't freeze up. They stay in their liquid form, and at the same time, they're at a temperature where some of the bacteria has a better chance of surviving in these nasty chemicals. So it could be that there are locations, Mars, probably more likely the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, where these particular chemicals at particular temperatures might be optimised for bacterial survival. If there is bacteria already living there. Already living there, you know, and it somehow had to evolve in that, in that space, but, or, or, you know, end up there via, you know, comets or whatever other processes you might get stuff there. But, um, it's interesting because it, it says, okay, hang on. What we consider to be these nasty, awful environments might actually be optimized environments for survival in those chemical solutions. We don't normally think of it that way. We normally mm-hmm. think, yeah, it's too cold, minus 30 degrees. What's going to survive in minus 30 degrees? But actually, if you're dealing with these sorts of chemicals, you don't want to be at room temperature because at room temperature, the killing processes that these chemicals oh, have, yeah. they work really efficiently mm-hmm. and it kills all the bacteria. But once you cool it down, that doesn't happen. So, anyway, there's a lot more, lot more experiments for these guys to do because I think um, overall, you know, as I say, this is survival. It's not, you know, thriving. thrival. Thrival. <laughs> is that a word? <laughs> it's not thrival. It's surviving, and that's um, that's a bit different. So, anyway, interesting. Yeah. Um, all the more reason to go and check these places out. I say. Triple. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. Now, we hopefully have on the line a PhD student. Her name is Mira Beknazarova. She's from Flinders University. Mira, can you hear us? Yes, yes, I can. Thanks so much for uh, giving us your time today. Uh, you, you've been working on an area that uh, I have to say I'd never particularly heard of. Um, it's it's a which I guess is part of the problem. It's a, a parasitic worm that's um, quite prolific in terms of infecting, uh, in particular, vulnerable Australians, but across the world. Tell us a bit about that's this true. worm. What what? Um, how do you get it? What what is it uh, like? Uh, what does it compare to? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So the worm is called Chongoloid tercoralis. Uh, as, as you said, it's uh, highly underestimated. It's um, prevalent in uh, worldwide and in Australia, predominantly in the remote communities. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a parasitic worm. It can uh, get into humans through the skin uh, penetration. Mm. Um, uh, 
What, what, I mean, what does it do? Like, what, what's, why would I be concerned if I had this worm? <laughs> uh, so in majority of people, uh, mostly in healthy people, it has no symptoms, uh, uh, no symptoms or very mild symptoms such as, uh, skin rash or cough or gastrointestinal symptoms. As, as you can notice, the symptoms are not specific and they mimicking other common diseases such as flu. So that is why well, a disease often uh, gets unnoticed. Mm. But then, but then, but then the problem is when the uh, immunity system gets uh, weak in elder age people or in immunocompromised, immunosuppressed people. The disease can take a severe form, and this is uh, always uh, often fatal, unfortunately. Wow! And, and what what percentage of of people end up, you know, with fatalities as a result of this infection? Uh, sorry. How many, how many people, so that, well, I'll ask it a different way. How, how many people in Australia are dying from this, this particular worm each year? Yeah, that's the problem. We don't know the true, uh, estimates. We don't know the prevalence of this disease. We don't know the true number of the deaths. Mm. But, uh, the, the, the fatality rate is, uh, 80%, according to some studies. Um, Mira, it's Dr. Linden here. How, with such yeah. a, a nasty worm, such a horrible disease, how can we know so little about it if it's got an 80% fatality rate? Why do we not know it more is. about this little guy? <laughs> well, as I said, the uh, initial symptoms, they are they're quite innocent and they are similar to other diseases. I think uh, people just never notice them, never go and um, talk to a doctor. Um, uh, yeah, but in Australia, it's been uh, quite a long issue. In fact, the first report been uh, reported. The first case has been reported since early uh, 1900s, and it's been an ongoing issue. So, um, yeah, I don't know why this comes so uh, underestimated. And Mira, it's Dr. Catherine here. If people do have this worm and it's picked up early, how is it then treated? Uh, there are a few drugs that have been uh, approved by the World Health Organization. Uh, the anti-hermetic drugs such as ivermectin, uh, medendazole, albendazole, and they are shown to be quite effective. However, the problem is uh, we do not, we humans do not develop the immunity. So once the drug uh, leaves the body, we can uh, get reinfected. And also, um, we've seen the resistance development in uh, animal studies, so that might be a potential uh, in humans. And are there particular areas in Australia that are especially at risk of where um, the worm actually yes. is? Yeah, in Australia, it's highly prevalent in the uh, remote communities, predominantly in the Northern Territory. So the worm, uh, we often see it in the moist and uh, wet environment, so in tropical and subtropical areas. But it is also highly associated with um, disadvantaged uh, communities where we have problems with uh, septic tanks, uh, rubbish removal. Mm. So what is your research looking at then, Mira? Is it, are you going into these communities to kind of raise awareness or are you studying different treatments? What are you doing over there at Flinders Uni? Yep, uh, so um, I am from the environmental health background. So initially we were interested in the environmental phase of this worm, so where exactly it lives in the environment and how can we protect, protect, uh, protect people from getting infected in the first place. So we started looking at the potential uh, environmental sources 
such as wastewater or dog feces. And then we got interested in uh, dog species, so whether the dogs carry same Chongoloid uh, stercoralis species that humans uh, do, and whether there is a potential of uh, infecting each other, um, whether dogs can infect us or vice versa. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, Mira, it's very interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about the, the sort of the size of the problem worldwide. I mean, how does this compare to other major um, similar scenarios like malaria and so forth? I mean, in terms of the number of cases, do you think? Uh, if you look at the World Health Organization side, I think they are, they say that there are up to 215 million people uh, infected with strongoloidy. However, there have been uh, studies done that show that there is a highly uh, underestimated number, and uh, it is actually uh, up to 370 million people infected, which is uh, much higher than the malaria. Mm. It is, and one of the other things you, uh, you mentioned in the information you sent through was that this is not necessarily listed in the Australian National Notifiable Diseases list. Why, is. why is that? Because we don't know the true prevalence, uh, we don't. It's not really common in the mainstream population in Australia, mm. I guess. Uh, so that's why we are arguing strongly that uh, this disease deserves to be a notion, nationally notifiable, and um, it needs to be uh, uh, to, to, to be put on this list. Mm. Sounds like something should happen soon. Mira, thanks so much for talking to us today and good luck with the ongoing work of your PhD. How long have you got to go before you finish? Uh, hopefully a year to go. <laughs> okay. Sounds yeah. good. Well, good luck and uh, hopefully you'll get a lot more people uh, aware of this particular problem and, and some more uh, research funding will come come into it to, you know, push it forward. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling. Thanks so much. That was uh, PhD student Mira Beknazarova, which I think I got right, from Flinders University. Um, I didn't know about this worm. It makes me want to stay indoors. Oh, it's horrid. I know. Yeah. Jeez, these things, there's so many things around there that get us. Australia, out <laughs> to get you. Australia, yeah, that should be our ad. <laughs> <laughs> we only want the thrill seekers because we're out to get you completely. <laughs> we're just, we're shockers. We're going to take a break, folks, uh, in just a few minutes. We're back. Um, we're going to be talking to a researcher who is also a cancer survivor on how a researcher has gone through that process, which I suspect is very different to a member of the public who does not have a, especially a biomedical research background. I'm sure the information comes across very differently to someone who understands the enormous amount of jargon that no doubt gets thrown at people. You're listening to Einstein the Go Go and Through to Blah. We'll be back in just a sec. Three. Triple. And welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. We have a guest in the studio that was on just a few weeks back. You may remember her. Her name is Dr. Francine Marquez. She's from the Baker Institute. Francine, welcome back to Triple R. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Um, now, we, we, um, last time you were on, we were talking about your research. Just remind us what you are doing. So we? I'm interested in um, how people develop um, high blood pressure oh, yeah, and right. how we could prevent that, and particularly using uh, combinations of uh, fiber, because fiber is important for yeah. feeding our gut microbes. And we have some um, very exciting data to show that uh, this uh, fiber can uh, prevent uh, and decrease uh, high blood pressure, but also other uh, factors associated with cardiovascular disease. Now, I'm pretty sure you were the person who taught me 
that the two numbers that we get when we get our blood pressure measured are the lowest pressure experienced in the heart and the highest pressure experienced yes. in the heart, yes. which I'd never heard in my entire life of getting my blood pressure checked. No one ever explained that to me, not once. Thank you, Francine, for clearing yep. that up. And to see, I remember, guests think I don't remember stuff. I remember <laughs> stuff, yeah, things that I don't know. Now, we, we wanted to get you back in, though, because one of the things that we were talking about off-air is that you have essentially had and survived a, a pretty serious cancer scare in your yep. life. So what, what sort of, tell us a bit about the type of cancer you had, first of all. So I had uh, stage 3 ovarian cancer. Right. So I had the most common type of uh, ovarian cancer. And uh, it was quite advanced. So you can have uh, cancer stage 1 to stage 4. Mm-hmm. So mine being stage 3 was quite advanced and yep. spread. Uh, and I had uh, what I thought no symptoms at the time. I didn't feel anything differently. And it was all a big surprise to suddenly find out that I had cancer. Yeah. Now, uh, clear up something for me because we've we've done a lot with the Ovarian Cancer Foundation over the years. And one of the things that I do remember is that it's not necessarily the ovaries that you have the cancer in when you have ovarian cancer. So can you talk us through the range of areas that ovarian cancer covers? Um, yes, yeah, so you can also have uh, cancer that starts in the fallopian uh, tubules, mm-hmm. and, uh, but oh, in the um, ovari- uh, ovaries as well. Uh, but one of the issues is that um, ovarian cancer can spread quite quickly. Yep. And in most cases, because patients don't have any symptoms, they don't know that they have cancer. Yeah. And by the time that the cancer is detected, it has spread a fair bit. And that's why the um, survival rates are usually very low, very low because cancer is detected at late stages. Yeah. And why is that? How How is ovarian cancer detected? Um, that's one of the issues, and that's why the work that Ovarian Cancer uh, Australia and also the Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation mm. uh, do that is so important is because there are no markers. So we have a blood marker that is not very uh, specific, can be used, like in my case, after I survive to monitor if the disease is back, but it doesn't work for everybody and can also change in uh, women premenopausal. Uh, but there are absolutely no other markers. So the only way is being aware of symptoms, which are also very general and things that most women would have through the month anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And even one day I was talking uh, to a male colleague about the symptoms and he said, I think I have ovarian cancer. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true because uh, like we can all feel the same symptoms and it's very difficult to distinguish that they could be uh, cancer. Yeah. Francine, so why, why did you turn up, you must have turned up at a doctor's clinic at some stage. I mean, you said there were virtually no symptoms. I mean, what, what was the, what was the yeah. point of that? So, uh, a few years before that, uh, I was in Brazil. I'm originally from Brazil and mm-hmm. my sister's a gynecologist. And while I was there, she examined me, just a routine exam. Hmm. And she found I had a small cyst in my right ovary, but okay. it was a benign cyst. And she told me that those cysts uh, can grow. In that case, then they would, uh, it would need to be removed. But, um, she said every year since I'm going to be in Australia, get an ultrasound done and make sure that the cyst is still the same size. And I went to my GP. I asked to get the ultrasound done. And when I came back for the results thinking it was going to be nothing, uh, he said, oh, that cyst is still there, the same size, but there's something else on the other side. Oh, wow. And he sent me to an oncogynecologist here in Australia, and she uh, said that based on the images and based on my health and age, it was probably just another cyst. And she asked me to repeat the ultrasound in six months and then go back to see her. 
I mean, you're so lucky your sister yes. gave you that advice. Yes. This seems amazing to me because as a physics guy, I look at a lot of these imaging techniques and there's some that I put in the hard expensive category like functional MRI. You know, this is an expensive piece of equipment and not many people can be you know put through it in a given day. Ultrasound I put in the x-ray category. This is a simple as hell, you can buy one online yourself category. Why is it that we're not doing, you know, we do mammograms and so forth for breast cancer. Why are we not doing routine yearly tests with ultrasound of yeah. women for, for this? It, seem, it seems like a, a trivial test to do. It's easier than a blood test. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the problem is that um, ovarian cancer is still much more rare mm-hmm. uh, than a breast cancer. And I think because of that, they screening, um, I'm not sure how much it would actually detect something that right. is useful to have the screening. Mm. And for me, that's what exactly what happened. I came back, the doctor looked and said, oh, I don't think it's anything, just come back and do the ultrasound and what happened is that I left her office and I called my sister and said don't worry about it it's not cancer and she said I didn't like the image and I want the cyst removed Right. So I end up going back to Brazil to do the surgery to remove the cyst. Mm. And when they open up, they found I had cancer. Wow. So the ultrasound in this case wouldn't have helped much either. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Now, what I want to explore with you a little bit, and this is one of the reasons we got you back in, is information when it's given to patients um, by clinicians can often be very scary and very technical and very detailed. What I'm curious about is whether it's more scary to someone who really understands the biological systems of the body. I mean, you, you work at the Baker, you know, Institute. You understand how the body works and what all these things do and what these tests are and so forth. So, I mean, what, can you talk us through your experience as a, as a patient, as a researcher? You know, when someone tells you something, you know about statistics, you know about testing, you know about false positives, you know all this stuff. I mean, what was that like? Uh, it was very difficult. Uh, talking to uh, the doctors uh, themselves wasn't as uh, scary because most of the time I think I would come with the information I said I found this paper saying this <laughs> what do you think yeah <laughs> and I don't think they were actually used to uh, having that uh, but I think going home and um, putting on PubMed ovarian cancer and saying about survival rates and right. prognosis and everything <clears throat> else that was very upsetting in the beginning uh, and that was something that I had to decide that I was not going to be looking into every single thing because it was driving me crazy and also making me very upset. Mm. Um, survival rates are very low for ovarian cancer. Yeah. And, uh, for example, for stage three that I was diagnosed, about 50% of people don't make it to five years. Wow. And of the other 50% that make it, about 70 or 80% will be sick again. Yeah. So I didn't want to think about all of those that are going to be sick and think that maybe I was going to be in that category. Instead, I said, oh, well, if there's like a 5% that is going to be alive and well, maybe I'll be those 5%. Yeah. And I had to have something to focus on. Yeah. But it was very difficult. And I think one of the main issues of being a medical researcher was actually advice that people from the community, like and friends and family that had the best of the intentions gave me because they'd say, oh, I read that uh, having right. a garlic, like a, <laughs> a raw garlic in the morning is going to cure, you know, yep. cancer yep. or like all these crazy things that there's absolutely no scientific evidence for. And uh, that was, I think, the hardest bit. Yeah, yeah. How do you think the doctors that you interacted with dealt with you. I mean, they, they must have known who you were, they, they knew your areas of expertise. Do you think that changed 
how they treated you? Did they? Do you think they treated you with more empathy or less empathy because they could just speak shop to you? Uh, I don't think it changed in terms of empathy, but I think it might change the way that they delivered the information because they might felt they could give me more information about the disease or the medication or things mm. that I could do. Um, but I, I didn't feel I was treated differently because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, when you talk about survival rates and so forth, and this, I mean, you know, for people out there who are experiencing this condition or other cancers, I mean, this is a difficult conversation to hear. But um, you must have, I'm, I'm wondering, as a researcher, you know, you talked about, you know, the garlic scenario and people making suggestions. And there are a lot of alternative medicine things out there that frankly have really good marketing teams, you know, that are really good at selling crap. And most of it, Probably all of it is crap. But you, you must have seen some of those survival rates. And did you look at any of that? Did you, was there a part of you that said, shit, you know, I know how modern medicine works. I know how slow it progresses in clinical trials and stuff, you know, sometimes 10, 20 years. Should I be looking at this stuff? I mean, that, did that come into your mind? Uh, yes and no. So some of it, for example, having like a turmeric, there is some evidence mm. that it might decrease inflammation, but there is not enough evidence that it might actually work in uh, humans uh, for cancer. So I think there is a lot of misconception out there of what is available, what is not. I have always had a healthy diet. I always exercise, and I try to continue that. Uh I thought that that was going to prevent me from having any type of disease such as cancer, which it didn't. But I have a very strong mind that um, that helped me to keep healthy and alive after. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it is a a difficult uh, topic, I Mm. guess, for for cancer patients. And that's one of the reasons also that I put a blog together to try to give some advice to cancer patients that is uh, evidence-based where possible. Yeah. And uh, because I did feel that there is a lot of websites uh, um, that are taking advantage of people when they are in the most vulnerable situation possible. Absolutely. Dr. Shane, the thing also that concerns me a lot about some of the alternative or complementary medicines that that sometimes reach Western medicine but don't mm. is that they can actually some, we we have evidence that they're not effective, but they can actually be harmful yeah. to the cancer yeah, treatments. And I'm not certain of the case in ovarian cancer, but in other cancers, uh, it can actually uh, have interactions with chemotherapy and other drugs and be be cause damage. So I always recommend people actually speak to a doctor before actually starting yeah. anything. Not mm. not of course your exam. They're, they're spot on, but some of the very unusual examples mm. um, because they can be harmful. Yeah. And, Francine, I mean, it's interesting because um, Catherine works in this area quite prolifically herself. One of the things I'm curious about is when you were going through this process with the, you know, with the treatment and the recovery, uh, you, you know, you're a fit person, you're a healthy person. How important was continuation of, of that fitness regime and that to your recovery? Because this is what Catherine works on. And yeah, yeah, very, very important. And I completely agree with you that, like, you need to disclose anything that you're going to do anything that you want to take even like exercise ask your doctor make sure you communicate with them properly see how much you can be doing because even after surgeries you might not be able to do a lot of exercise but mm-hmm. I think it had a substantial role in my recovery that I was very active before mm-hmm. I was out of uh, the bed in the hospital after big surgery uh, after three days mm-hmm. and uh, and there is a lot of evidence now showing even like in uh, breast cancer some research from the baker being done that it might be able to prevent some damage that is done to the heart uh, with like chemotherapy and so on. Mm. So it is very important that patients keep active, but they need to communicate well with their doctors to see how much, how much they, they can, can actually do, do. safely. Yeah. yeah. 
So Francine, what is your relationship with your experience now that you've kind of moved past this and um, you've recovered, uh, things are going well? Are you still maintaining that blog and you're obviously still talking about your experience? Are you touching in with research about ovarian cancer and, and kind of working in that space or do you kind of like to put a bit of a wall between it now that you've passed? Yeah. Um, no, my research focus on cardiovascular disease. I think we have wonderful um, ovarian cancer researchers in Australia and overseas and uh, I don't have the expertise in that area. I decided that I was not going to take that uh, path. Uh, but I continue with my blog much slower than I was during cancer and there are times that I do feel that I'm a little bit out of touch to be writing uh, the blogs. So that's why I'm actually accepting guests uh blog writers as well if anyone of there is interested what's your blog again Francine yeah. for those it's called know. chemo and beauty so uh, the blog focuses on giving very practical advice uh, for about um, beauty and well-being during chemotherapy for patients so what I found and the reason why I put the blog together um, was that once you go in to do your first chemo that nurse will come and she'll give a list of all the bad stuff that is going to happen to you but nobody tells you how to actually like prevent mm-hmm. those things from happening or how to deal with them and that's why I decided to put the blog together because there is so much misinformation out there so I try to write something that is simple that people can uh, read quickly and get something out of it and where possible I'll add like scientific references and all of that to support. What, what was that sorry I just want to touch on that that process of them giving you a list of what's going to happen to you I mean I, I'm one of those people on occasion I'll look at the back of a you know medication I've been and, and look at the side effects and gone oh I'm not sure I want to take that yeah. <laughs> like you know everything has you know water has a side effect drowning um, you know like if, everything has side effects in the pharmaceutical industry and some of them are quite bad some are nasty and some are not but I mean what what was that process like I mean how did they go about that because I can imagine that list is quite nasty and yes. harsh and personally offensive you know in a way to to how you see yourself and so forth i mean that must have been i mean how they how they do that uh you don't get much of an option because it's either you're going through treatment or mm, right. you yeah or you might die from cancer yeah. so uh, you don't have much of an option you might be able to discuss with your doctors like i did i read some papers before with my doctors uh, before i came in about different um delivery of chemo so i yep. had i was supposed to have chemo once every three weeks i spoke to them about having uh, weekly doses that were lower they agreed um and uh that ended up not working the whole way but you can you can talk to the doctors mm, about mm. it but yeah with the, the list of symptoms it's very difficult to um, deal with and you're right like for example for me included like losing my hair yeah and when people talk about losing your hair you don't realize that it's not just the hair in your head but right. it's everywhere you lose your eyebrows your lashes your like any body hair or even like in your nose and so on so uh, it is a, a very difficult side effect for women especially yeah. but for everybody yeah. So, yeah, so the list is long, it's difficult, and that's why um, I felt the need to actually write something that could help patients going through the same. Yeah, it's fabulous. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that you would you would hope, um, you know, when you get that brochure with the list of side effects, you get the other brochure yes. that has uh, the stuff you've been writing. I mean, but so are they doing that? 
That's no, but that's my uh, vision. I don't know when I'll have the time to actually put it together in a book, but mm. my hope is that one day I'll finish writing the book and I could get some support to give it for free for the patients. So once they come in, they get the bed list and they get something to help yeah. them. Yeah. Well, if you crowdfund that or whatever, you make sure you come back and tell us and we'll Thank promote you. that because I think that's, that's something that, uh, it's interesting sometimes how much there's a lack of empathy in, in the medical system and how, how much effect that can have have on the outcomes for the patients. Yeah. I mean, this is that, that link that we make that we forget to make sometimes is that you know patients who are better resourced and happier and so forth as they go through these processes end up doing better in a health sense. So yeah. there's real reasons to have that there. So just before we let you go, um, I mean, you mentioned the five-year survival rates and, and the reoccurrence and so forth. So where are you in that cycle now? Like this, this yeah. is... Um, three years post-cancer. Okay. Yeah. Um, I still, of course, have some... Uh, uh, a couple of years ago and in some battles still because of long-term side effects mm-hmm. of having um, surgeries and so on. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, I'm very hopeful that um, I'll be one of the uh, lucky few survivors and uh, I'll be able to keep telling my story and helping raise awareness about ovarian cancer. Absolutely. Are you sending your sister really good Christmas presents these days? Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, that, it's amazing. I mean, you, you're yeah. so lucky. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You, you're so, so lucky, lucky yeah. that your sister just happened to be in the field and just yes. happened to check you out yes. and just and yeah. and some people don't realize when I say like I'm I'm very lucky to be alive. Some people say, how can you say you're lucky when you went through like so much, mm. you know, love of, of like having ovarian cancer, losing my ovaries and so on. Mm. And uh, but yes, I'm I'm alive. I'm well. I'm incredibly lucky. Yeah. yeah. Look, um, it's an absolute privilege to have you in here with us. Thanks so much for coming back, and we we wish you all the best of luck. And when you do put that book out, make sure you you come back and talk to us about it. We'll promote the hell out of it. We've done a lot of promotion for ovarian cancer over the years because um, it there's some amazing charities for things like breast cancer but unfortunately some of the lesser known cancers that have much lower survival rates get absolutely stuff all funding by comparison which is a, is a real shame and it would be great to see um, people should be lining up to help support you do this so thanks so much and good luck and we will speak to you again thank you <laughs> dr francine marquez is from the baker institute and uh Thankfully, came in and chatted to us about this important topic. We're going to take a break, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be talking about uh, Catherine's been adventuring up in Sydney with a, another radio station. I have. It's a, it's a bit <laughs> sick, but, uh, yeah, we're still going to let her talk about it. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple R. 102.7. Now then, uh, Dr. Catherine, you have been gallivanting around Sydney. Moonlighting. Moonlighting. <laughs> on another channel. Uh, no, I mean, you, you were, look, let's, let's back it up a bit. Uh, you, uh, put forward your name as part of a nationwide competition to uh, essentially work as a, in an internship, I guess you'd call it, with the ABC in Sydney. Yeah, a residency. A residency. Course, yeah. yeah. Sorry, a residency. Sounds a bit better. Um, and there were like hundreds of people who, did this and they picked what five that's right five scientists and there will be five people from the humanities later this year right and i mean tell us a bit about the other four i mean who 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 got to go in addition all to men i assume no in fact this year all females and that was <laughs> <laughs> i knew that dr linden's uh cheering over here in the corner yep. um and a lot of people, when the media came out, which was about a month ago, about the top five this year, mm. a lot of people misunderstood and thought it was a female award because this year, for the first time, there were five female scientists. But in fact, it wasn't an award for females at all. Mm. It was open to anyone. So uh, just open- the best five. 
Yeah, and early career researchers yep. this was targeted to. And again, this year for the first time they have it open to people in the arts and humanities as well, which right. will be later this year. But, but yeah, four other amazing scientists doing, doing incredible work. So there was a lady from Perth who is an astrophysicist cool. doing work in, um, surveying the, the stars and mm-hmm. all this amazing, amazing work there. There were two people from Queensland. Uh, one was a psychologist doing work in, um, post-traumatic stress disorder in people who are refugees. Mm. And the other person from Queensland was doing work with spinifix grass and its use in Indigenous communities and its use to, uh, for engineering and and the properties of it. And then the fourth person was from Sydney who was a, uh, working in genetics and DNA and particularly in, um, public use of DNA and the work they're doing now in sort of DNA testing and they can identify people and in these sort of these mm. crime stories and things. Quite incredible work. So the five, and, and obviously my background is physiotherapy and exercise. So the five of us came from five really diverse backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, but, but it was an incredible experience. And, and I mean, give us a bit of an idea of what, what you did there because a lot of people don't realize that, um, you know, these, these larger, you know, organizations like the ABC, there is just an incredible machinery behind everything they do. You know, it's one of the reasons why they've got a fair bit of funding, you know, probably not enough, but, you know, there's an incredible machinery to, to these particular organizations. I mean, what, what did you do when you were there? It, it, it was huge. I mean, we were in Sydney in, in the main headquarters and the building that I was in, in the middle of Sydney, that had 2,000 people there. So right. we're talking the big, you know, big studios, uh, lots of people, uh, incredible, incredible resources. Uh, but I worked, so we had two weeks there and the first day I sort of turned up thinking this is going to be a training program and I'm going to be learning a lot. And then, and it, in fact it was, but there were five things that we needed to achieve by the end of the two weeks. And it was the best. And I come again from an academic background. So I'm, I'm always thinking about teaching and learning strategies. It was the best learning strategy because they, uh, gave us a training program and workshops, but we had to actually deliver at the end of two weeks. So the five things we had to deliver. The first one was we needed to produce a radio piece that will Mm -hmm. be on one of their science shows. And for me, because I work in in health, it's going to come out on the health report in in a few weeks. Um, The second was an online piece around science for their online community uh, Mm -hmm. and website. The third was a radio interview with another one of the top five scientists, so a Q&A radio interview, which will come out on, on one of their other podcasts. The fourth was a social media video about ourselves, And then the last one to, was to be interviewed on live radio. But I've been extremely lucky to be <laughs> mentored by Dr. Shane over the last uh, maybe six years. Yeah, it's a while. Six years. Yeah. A long yeah. time. So I, I felt very uh, privileged from all of the mentoring that you've given me oh, in wow. the time. to um, So that made that a little bit easier for me. Yeah, I mean, because you, I mean, you've done a lot of interviews here on the show as well so you know even interviewing other people i mean you're you're always in the room doing that as well so it's um it's an important point that i think a lot of people don't actually realize about this show is the work that dr shane does in supporting early career researchers in communicating to the media and for example i would never have had this opportunity or been able to go up to abc if it hadn't have been for you Mm. um you know back when i was back in 2010 i think when i was doing my phd you encouraged me to come on the show like you do you know we had a phd student today on the show may have been her first interview and you've continued to do that for years and and then we have postdocs and, and more experienced people but it's it's really important work uh that you do with this show in encouraging people no matter how nervous they are whether they've never had experience with media before to come on here and just to learn about communicating and getting the word out i think we we, we sort of forget that that the work you've done in in raising and training 
Young you, you, you know we're supposed to be talking about you, right? <laughs> <laughs> do you see the way she did that? That's, that's very cheeky. Well, thank you, Catherine. Yeah, um, no, it's important. Yeah. We do forget that. You know, we have people on every week and, and often we forget that well, it's good for the public, but it's great for young researchers mm, to learn yeah. about being in, in the media. I think one, one of the things that people forget about, you know, like you, you see some of the larger channels, the commercial channels, or the ABC, and the immense machinery behind what they do, and the product on some of them is very, very good. But at Triple R, we don't have that immense machinery. We only have what's supported by the public and, you know, through Radiothon and, and so forth. And it gives us, but it gives us opportunities to get anyone we want in and do whatever we want in these shows. We get the support of the station to do that. And that, that's a huge privilege to be able to do that and put that out to the public every week. And it means some of us have to do a bit, a bit more yes. <laughs> work than, than we might like, but, but it's important. And look, it, it's, it's fabulous that you've, um, you've had this experience, Catherine. I think it'll, it'll change the way you interact with, um, with the public, with the media and so forth, because you, you will, you know, two, two week intensive. Yeah, uh, with the it was, ABC it was a, in, in fact, yeah. I, I was thinking that, I mean, I've, my career has been clinical in a hospital as a physiotherapist and then now more recently in mm. academia but but sitting and working in with, with journalists and in a yeah. in, in this sort of industry was so different for me yeah. it was quite incredible quite an unusual experience to move out of your profession and go and sit and be Do in a completely else. different profession yeah. it was it was a nice privilege well and congratulations on being five in australia fantastic thank you very much dr linden great to see you again great to be back dr shane dr Rathen, good to have you in thank you uh i'm dr shane remember science is everywhere have a great sunday and we'll chat to you again next week this has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.